Is safety net solving like the, the biggest problems in fishing? So it depends who you are. So to some people, the biggest problem in fishing is fishing. Welcome to episode number six of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee. If you watch Seaspiracy and have feels, this is the episode for you. I personally stopped halfway through because I felt it was poorly done, but what do I know? Today we're talking about two things, fish and ocean technology. The fish need to get to 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney, and we need to help them get there. Consuming red meat is between 50 and 500 times worse for the environment than eating fish. Specifically, on a scope one carbon basis, the capture, production, and distribution of fish is between 0.2 and 2% of red meat. The ocean is one of the largest carbon consumers on Earth. Around 31% of human-caused carbon emissions are swallowed up by our oceans. In order to keep plants and animals who consume that carbon alive and thriving, human fish capture and consumption needs to change. My partner and I rarely cook meat in the home. We often say we have a vegetarian household, although in reality we're pescatarian. Living in Seattle, we're lucky to have an abundant variety of fresh fish. And until this episode with Dan Watson, the CEO of SafetyNet, I believed buying wild-caught made me a more conscious consumer. Dan and I dive into the realm of fishing, its future, and how ocean technology will play a massive part in ensuring our oceans are healthy and vibrant. And most importantly, filled with loads of fish. Dan is co-founder and CEO of SafetyNet Technologies, a startup creating precision fishing technologies that use hardware and data to move closer to a world where humans and the ocean thrive together. SN Tech is a profit with purpose company as they believe sustainable change requires an underlying sustainable business model. They make lots of fish puns and they help reliably feed one fifth of the earth's human population. Dan is committed to making technology accessible to anyone who has a problem they want to try and solve or an idea they want to explore. Current focuses include measuring the whole ocean, bottom to top, space technologies, and cats. Safety Net started back in 2012 as Dan's side project, and he's grown the company into an international award-winning full-time endeavor. Over the years, Dan has cultivated a very interesting perspective on fighting climate change, and he chews on one of the main themes we explore on this podcast. Everything I say is my own opinion and is no way reflective of my employer. It's also not investment advice or anything else that can get me sued. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah. And so maybe if you don't mind explaining a little bit about what SafetyNet does, uh, and then of course we'll dive into the creation of SafetyNet and, and your experience and your background, um, and then how you ended up in London when you support uh, ocean-based companies. Yeah, great. So, so SafetyNet builds technologies to help the commercial fishing sector to be more sustainable. Um, we build precision fishing technology and basically how we started out was trying to help fishing crews who are putting nets and other fishing gear in the water to catch only the fish that they're trying to catch and leave the rest in the water because there's this issue in the fishing world called bycatch. And that's where you're catching stuff that's either economically or environmentally stuff that you're not aiming for, right? You don't want to catch it because it's low cost or because it's endangered or it's juvenile. So why you really don't want to catch this in your nets, but it's hard to avoid it. So the stuff that we build is all about making sure that that doesn't happen and then showing the value to fishing vessels of actually catching in this way so that it's economically makes sense for their bottom line, um, but also helps the planet at the same time because you maintain biodiversity and you enable a food security for future generations of fish eaters. 
And did you grow up fishing? How did you end up in the world of fishing? I imagine it's like quite small, it's like fishing technology. Yeah, the, the fishing technology world is very small, so small that I never encountered it before I started working on this. I have no background in fishing. None in my family were like fishermen going out to sea and being all heroic. Like it's a hard job, um, but I really don't think anyone in my family was, was involved with it before before this, to be honest. Um, so the way I get, got involved with it was because I was studying in Scotland and there was all this press about the fact that fishermen were catching the wrong fish and being arrested for it. And so I got involved because I was a student at the time and I needed a final year project for my engineering masters. And being near to the fishing industry and some of the research organizations, I could actually go and meet them and, and start figuring out some of the issues that were going on in this, in this sector. And so that's really how I got introduced into fishing. And then since then, I've just sort of fallen in love with the industry because it's so interesting. Like there's everything, there's politics, economics, business, like the whole thing. And it's once you're in, you're kind of hooked. You don't, it's not easy to get out again. Nice. All right. So we'll count that one for fishing puns. <laughs> um, and we, we promise not to uh, make too many of them. Not only that, like, have you gone into the fishing industry, but you've also, from what I've read, kind of done very well. You won a Dyson Award. Do you mind explaining what that is, how you won it? Um, I know Sir James Dyson was not, uh, it is, is British, right? Um, and so like for people listening in the, uh, in the US, if you don't mind giving us a bit of context, that'd be great. Yeah, so, so James Dyson uh, made his money uh, inventing and patenting a new form of vacuum cleaner. Um, so he did that all on his own. He owned 100% of the company the whole way through, fought a load of patent battles, um, raised money from all over the place to try and get this to happen and eventually was successful. And he's now actually one of the richest men in the UK. And weirdly, I think he's like the largest private farmland owner in the UK. He's a huge farmer as well. So he's very diverse in his like interests. He set up an award, which is this annual global award, which is around design thinking and design, achievements and design. And, um, and in 2012, I won it with SafetyNet, which was really exciting because it gave a huge boost to the project. It gave it a little bit of money, which was immediately spent on prototyping and stuff like that. But the big thing that it did was gave us this big media coverage because Dyson could basically talk to any newspaper and be like, talk about these guys. And that's what happened. So it meant that we immediately had this global platform. Uh, I think it was in like the New York Times, The Guardian, like all sorts of places that as a small company or a small project, even at that time, would have had absolutely no reach to whatsoever beforehand. And so now 2012, nine years later, uh, I, I see that you SafetyNet works with companies around the world. Can you tell me a little about what happened between then and now? Yeah, so I, what happened, like, I guess uh, for five years, it was a part-time project. It was sort of subsisting on competition wins and cash prizes for sort of sustainability awards and stuff. Working with scientists, getting looped into sort of large EU-funded projects as a small part of like work packages and stuff to build things. So that was really exciting because it meant we got to engage with the scientific community, got to sort of validate some of the theories and tests and prototypes. And then in 2018, I and my co-founders went more full-time. So I went full-time and they, they came on board. We were like, okay, hands in the middle, let's go do ocean stuff and work together on this. And actually over sushi. So it felt kind of appropriate. Um, and, and then agreed to go for this. And basically since then we've grown the team, we're now 15 people. We raised investment a couple of years back, a seed round of investment, um, which has enabled us to, to develop our product further and like sort of start more of those pilots and get stuff out there. And then the big thing that happened was in last March, uh, 2020, um, obviously famous because that was when we launched our first product, Pisces, and not at all because it was in line with the pandemic um, launching itself a couple of weeks later with lockdown. 
uh, we we launched the product and for the last year have basically been doing a lot of R&D and trying to create more relationships so that when things open up like now, we can get back to sea and start doing cool stuff again and testing. So you already mentioned you eat sushi. Do you eat fish? I clearly you're sustainability minded. Um, maybe we can start by like, what is your sustainability vice? What is something that you know yeah, is not good for the world, but you continue to do it? So for me, the, the big thing that's happened over COVID and has been like a bit of a, an awakening is, is the travel side of things. So I traveled a lot in this business because we were in fisheries and they're all over the world, lots of different projects, different people, and I love to travel. Um, but having not actually had to move around for the last year or so, it's really been like amazing to see, like we're talking, you know, we're talking over Zoom right now. Uh, I, I have meetings with people all over the place. I remotely check in with my team. And that's been like a massive thing of like, okay, we don't, we don't have to be the way that we were before. Like, I don't even have to go into the office anymore. Um, actually things like meat consumption as well. Like, you know, I, I do eat fish and I love fish, um, but I don't eat so much meat anymore. Like it's not a prerequisite for me. One of the weird things about the pandemic has been people being more true to themselves, I guess. Like, okay, I don't have to dress for work anymore. I don't have to respect my boss anymore. I mean, to a greater or lesser extent. People get to see inside my home when they talk to me over Zoom, right? Uh, and so I think that starts to bleed out into like a larger sphere of life where you start questioning other stuff which you always considered to be true or necessary. In terms of fishing itself, what are the what are the things that you've learned along the way that you think that, well, maybe like everyday consumers should know? Or like if you go, I don't know what the equivalent of Whole Foods is in, in the UK or in London, but if you go to like a relatively upscale grocery store, are there things that you look for when buying a fish and that you can then also peel back like, wow, I know that that fish came here by first getting caught in outside of London, then going to China or, or whatever. Yeah. So we actually have Whole Foods in London as well. Yeah. We, we've caught up. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, I think, of course, of course. Yeah, you know, like, we're, we're a global, we're a global city, I guess. But um, the the fish side of things is interesting. So like being in this world, you get to see technologies before they take off and you get to see the problems that those technologies are trying to solve. So uh, the traceability thing, obviously a huge, huge deal. Um, where has my fish come from? Who caught it? Were they living in good conditions? Were they working in good conditions? Were they safe? Were they fishing in a place that they should or shouldn't be? And do I actually know what madly in this day and age do i actually know what the fish in front of me that i'm eating is is it what someone told me it is like that to me the fact that that's still true today um is is really crazy but it's true um and so does that happen sorry to interrupt but does that if i like walked into whole foods and uh, you know very impressed that london has whole foods it's like you. what like the fifth biggest city in the world i don't know maybe in, the, in europe if i walk into whole foods and buy salmon is it possible that it's not salmon so, okay, salmon, it depends, again, really depends where you're buying it from. Um, so I think it's something like a fifth of fish that were ending up on UK plates, or maybe even a third actually, was mislabeled. So that was this fact that came out maybe even two weeks ago or, or, or even sooner. Um, like some of the biggest profile cases are things like snapper being mislabeled on, along the supply chain. And actually it's just not at all. It's a completely different fish. Um, salmon, you, you have probably, it depends if it's come from like aquaculture or if it's wild caught. And there are probably checks in place to know that what you're eating is salmon. And again, if you're going into Whole Foods, uh, I would hope or imagine that they have some sort of supply chain traceability. But when you're eating something that's been more heavily processed, right? So if you're eating a fish cake or you're eating like fish pie or something, um, where things have the chance to be mixed up, 
because a lot of the time what happens with fish processing is that things get like, they literally get frozen into massive blocks of fish by weight. And then they get stuck on an aircraft or a ship, like a massive um, cargo ship and taken to a whole different country, processed there because it's cheaper to do it in somewhere like China or Russia. And then they get refrozen and then packaged or whatever and, and shipped back for sale in a commercial market. Like in, for instance, in the US, it's cheaper to catch fish on the West Coast ship it over to China, process it, bring it back to the West Coast and sell it to consumers there. And, and actually, interestingly, stats around that. So like if you look at cargo ships, uh, a stat I heard the other day, if you fly it over, which is actually what happens with some fish, it's 20 times more carbon than shipping it on a big cargo ship because cargo ships are much more efficient these days for large, large waves and stuff. Yeah. And, and just for people listening, like we could kind of break down this into uh, this would be scope one emissions for your fish consumption. Like if you're eating fish, because it's the actual process to get the fish to like from the company to your plate um, and transportation is like a large part of that. And maybe not the problem that fishing needs to solve, but so interesting. What percent of fish eaten? I, I, I'm, and, and we really will get into safety net and, and there in a second. But what, what, I guess what percent of fish eaten do you think is processed versus like fresh Oh, it's a great question, but I honestly have no idea. Yeah, all good. All good. Do you personally look for wild caught or farm or organic or like how do you make your decisions when purchasing fish? So I'm in a, I guess, a slightly privileged position in that I work in the sector. And so I can see different bits and pieces going on. Um, so like many people, I look for things like the blue tick mark. I look for MSC, right? And MSC interesting organization. They do loads of work. Uh, the MSC is the Marine Stewardship Council. Um, and what they do is they have like a, they, they certify fisheries. They, or rather they don't, they are a body which regulates the certification of fisheries to sustainable standards. So independent third party or, or like um, auditors will go into a fishery, check it for a whole bunch of stuff about bycatch, about traceability, about lots of different things. Um, and then the MSC will stick the blue tick on there and for full transparency, the MSC charges people for the use of the check mark, right? They, they charge them to put it on packaging. It's how they keep going. It was set up by Unilever and I think maybe the British government like 20 years ago or something. So they, they do this to, to certify fisheries. And that's what I look for on a pack. And alongside that, I'll look at where it comes from in the world, right? So has this come from MSC? Okay, which fishery did it come from? Like how much do we actually know about that fishery? And that will, even as someone who works in this sector, I probably don't know enough about fisheries to be like, okay, that's probably 100% okay, or even 70% okay. But I go on trust because that's kind of what these labels are supposed to be for. Fair enough. And in terms of wild cod versus farm, do you have a preference? Yeah. So I will usually go for wild caught from a sustainable fishery if it's possible to figure that out. Um, I don't have a massive problem with aquaculture at all. Um, and actually, I think it's it's going to be where fishing goes in the future. It's going to be the way to sort this stuff out um, if they can get over the problems that agriculture currently faces, which are, are pretty diverse. But it's a it's a you know it's moving from like like we did as humans, it's moving from hunting to farming, which is a step that we've already done before on land and has actually yielded, if done sustainably and responsibly, it yields great upsides for a population because you don't have to run around after stuff all the time. The stuff is there, it's more reliable, and you can start to think about other things rather than where is my food coming from? And that makes a huge, huge like cognitive leap for a society because then you're not worrying all the time about where's my food and you can think about, okay, how do I treat this medical disease or how do I build this robot or whatever. And so just aquaculture for people who aren't in the industry is like, is it like a pond where they put salmon and grow them and then chop them up and, and send them to Whole Foods or somewhere else? 
Uh, essentially, yeah. So you, you get small fish, uh, you put them in a pen, you kind of know exactly what they need, or at least increasingly people can monitor what they need in the data around stuff like, like oxygen and fish feed and stuff. Um, and then you, you look after them and, until they've grown to a certain size and apparently kill them humanely is the goal. You kill them humanely and then you package them and send them off. Like large aquaculture in like in Scotland, in like in increasingly on land actually, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, and in the US. And I think this is a perfect time to jump into safety net. Uh, and we'll work backwards a little bit because if this is the future, how does, you know, what, what does safety net do today if they're targeting fishing vessels that are out in the ocean? And how is safety net going to play a role in the future if it's uh, farm fish? Absolutely. Good, good question. So safety net really was started with this idea of making like wild capture fisheries more sustainable, more selective. And that is still going to be something that needs to be done in the future. So, you know, like the stats are what, like a fifth of the world's population, I think on the conservative side, eat fish as their primary source of protein. And points have been raised recently, which I'm sure we'll get onto, which is about like how people in the West or more developed countries can look at their own diets and be like, okay, well, maybe I can cut down on this because I can afford to and I have the space. But a lot of people can't, right? And people rely on fish in subsistence or otherwise. And so Safety Net finds ways to make the capture of that fish more sustainable and more selective. And even in the future, when we're talking about aquaculture and raising fish in fish farms, there will be people who want to eat wild capture fish too. And if we can balance the, the yield of the oceans with what we're taking in a way that actually balances and is more, more sort of able to be maintained into the future, that's still a viable way of feeding people with protein because the oceans are huge. We just have to manage them properly. So what we've seen change the safety net is we've started off with selectivity devices and that's mainly with light and how light can affect the behavior of species of fish, right? So can we attract them? Can we repel them out of fishing gears to, to change what types of species and ages we're catching? But with this precision fishing approach that we're taking now, what we're really looking at as well is the data around this and the management side. So if you know more about how the ocean works and where fish are caught, what the environmental conditions were like there at the time, can you start to be more predictive in your modeling and management of the ocean space? And that's what we're really driving towards. But even at that time, the more ocean data that you have, the more knowledge you have of what's going on on a more granular, like temporal or spatial basis, you can start to help things like aquaculture because a lot of the risks to aquaculture come from the ocean. So you get things like algal blooms that blow up and then they drift towards things. And we saw like even recently, like a million salmon died in one harmful algal bloom incident in Scotland, like a million, right? Gone. And you can start to prevent that stuff if you have better, better ocean data as well. So we've really transitioned with this idea of like where fishing and where fish protein is going in the future. We've transitioned more to the sort of the management side of things. And it's about um, observing the ocean, measuring what's going on in it and how it's impacting it, and then responding with different types of technology. And that's what we're doing as a company. And the, the technology itself, how has it evolved from, in, in 2012, you were recognized by right one of the greatest inventors of all time, to you said you launched your product in 2020. And so like what changed and what is the product today gonna do? And, and our fisher and, and our fisher people, not fishermen, but fisher people, are they like ready to, are they ready to like, yeah, we want it, like, absolutely, or it's kind of, like, a, you have to sell it to them. Yeah, so what changed about us was I started this whole thing off being, like, I'm going to build a thing, people are going to buy it because it's good for the planet, and it's good, and that means you should buy it. You're a fisherman, buy my thing, help the planet, help the fish, whatever. And that was my driving motivation for, like, a good few years. It's like, people will take this because it's good. 
And then what changed was either I became more cynical or just learned more about the industry. And it's an industry. It's a business. In the end of the day, you're going to someone and saying like, I want you to put this on your boat and you're going to have to pay for it. And they're like, why? <laughs> and you're like, well, because fish, we need to save particular types of fish. And they're like, I'm a business. No. And what's happened since then is we've like done a lot of work to look at the value proposition, look at the, the business model and stuff. And like, how is this actually helping fishing businesses succeed? Well, at the same time, catching more selectively and like, how do you turn that selective fishing into a value proposition? So that's what we've had to work really, really hard on. We've had some support, like we've had the big guns come in from government and regulators, which is like actually fishing industry. Here are some laws that say you have to be more sustainable. So like NOAA has introduced import laws to, to the US food system. Like if you're catching stuff from outside the US and you want to import in, you have to show that you're not catching too much bycatch. The EU has done the same. Like you can't catch too much bycatch anymore. You can't throw it back into the ocean. You'll get fined. And so that's been really helpful in changing mindsets and behavior. And so the narrative you just told me is, is like directed at the fishing industry. What about when you go to your investors? Um, what is the narrative there similar? Or like, I guess in particular, what I'm curious is how much of SafetyNet is a technology company? How much of it is a sustainability company? And are you driven by profits, purpose? How do you manage all that? So we're, we're a profit with purpose company. Um, we like 100% believe, or I 100% believe that we're solving a problem that people should pay to solve. Like there are so many big global problems out there that need solving. If people are going to put the time and effort in it and to do it in a way that is easy for people to actually implement and use, and it gives them an upside, they absolutely deserve to be paid for it. And so for our investors, that kind of works as well, because I mean, so our investors from our first round were all sort of, you, you could say impact led, right? So one of them is a sustainable ocean fund. One is conservation international ventures, clearly impact led. And then another one is a social enterprise backing company called Mustard Seed. They're all absolutely interested in the impact. They see themselves as impact investors in that world. Um, and so it aligns very strongly with our mission, but they also want a return. And I, I won't be the first person to say this, and there are probably better people to better explain it. But at the moment, what we're seeing is there really isn't such a thing as an impact investor, to be completely honest, like from our perspective, right? Like people want returns. Um, what will change maybe is that they might be more willing to take a risk on a new area because it's aligned with their stated mission. Um, but people still want returns on the investment, right? And so I'm curious for you, I mean, do you also want returns on your investment, whether that's your, your time, your, your like blood, sweat and tears? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, like, I, I think again, we're solving this problem and it's been a lot of blood, sweat and tears and a lot of convincing people to come on this journey and actually also remove themselves from a world where they could be making a ton more money for the skills that they give to this company. They could be living a much easier life without the anxieties around working at a startup and what that's going to do for them or their families. But the mission drives us all. And it's, it's you know, I don't think that social or mission-driven entrepreneurs have to be poor and they don't have to sacrifice themselves or be martyrs for this. Like, they do not need to be like, I'm going to do this because it's for the good of the world. In the same way as we were asking people on fishing vessels to buy stuff because it was good for fish, I think, and that was the wrong approach. I think it's the wrong approach because if you put yourself out there and you're just martyring yourself because you're working at all hours of the night and day to solve a problem and you're not being rewarded, you're going to burn out and then you're not going to be able to do anything after that. Like you're wasted, you're a husk and then you can't do anything else. And that's a shame. And I think... I think it's a shame that there isn't more support for like social impact entrepreneurs because it's a double win. It's even a triple win in some cases. 
Yeah, something so interesting in terms of support. Um, I'm curious, like when you are having your bad days, not not that you're having bad days, but I'm going to assume that that the times become tough at, at certain points. And do you, what do you like, what do you dig deep for? Do you're like, okay, like I'm putting my heart and soul and I'm, you know, hopefully going to make like $3 million and whatever, or 3 million pounds, or is it like, I'm genuinely helping save the world, some combination of both? Uh, it's a combination of both. And like, it's a roller coaster. Like I'm sure anyone that you've spoken to will have told you this is a roller coaster. Like uh, last week you're flying high and you're like, this is great. Amazing. I'm so enthused. I'm going to go do some strategic planning because I can see where this is all going. And then the next week you get like one bad investor or customer email and you're like oh my god like why that's it i quit like i will quit by the end of the day that's it i'm done and i've probably told like my partner so many times that i'm quitting this um but it helps that my partner is also the ceo of safety net and so we kind of keep each other going (laughs) um to some extent but actually honestly like this is going to sound so corny but the reason you have to hire really good people on your team is because they are the ones it's like you pass the buck each time like i'm having a bad day like they pick me up they're having a bad day i pick them up because they have done something which they've maybe not noted that like this was an awesome thing that they did and you can be like oh that was awesome amazing this is so exciting and there is that sort of mutual support but i think the other thing that's super important is that like your work we don't we don't live to work right we work to live i know again cheesy but you have to have something outside of your work that keeps you going, right? I, I think. Because I gave so much of my life to Safety Net for the first few years where I was like living and breathing and eating it. It became my identity for a long time. And so when things went south in Safety Net, I had, from time to time, I had nowhere to turn, right? I had like nothing to be like, okay, I'm okay because this stuff's all cool. And what's happened now is a much healthier sort of work-life balance of like, okay, Safety Net is exciting and interesting. And when I'm up for it, this is wicked. But when I... I'm down. I have other things to turn to, which keep me going. Yeah. When was, I guess, what time, what what time period was the bottom of the barrel for safety net? Yeah. It's interesting. Like it's, it's a, it's a recurring cycle, right? So like things will feel like they're up and then they're suddenly down. Like we, things go wrong, right? Like you don't account for the way that something is going to be used. Those are the downs, right? But at the same time, like they also lead to some of the ups because when it works, it's like, wow, that just worked. Like we got this like really clear split between species of fish that we were trying to split out, which means we can do it here. We can maybe even do it over here and we can scale this up. And like the team turns around and goes, okay, we get what the company's going through, still bought in. Or they're not. But it, yeah, it's hugely up and down. Like, I mean, I imagine in anyone who's listening to this in their own lives will have had similar things. Fish are one of the few things I've killed and eaten myself. In the first half of the interview, I wanted to pick Dan's brain about his experience in the fishing industry. As a consumer, I often feel blind to the steps that bring the food to my plate, and Dan's unique experience helps shed some light. In the second half of the interview, Dan and I discuss what SafetyNet does and how their technology can help the world reach net zero emissions. What, what, I'm curious, what is the mission of, um, of SafetyNet? what's like the objective maybe not like uh, I, I don't know if there's like a, a forever objective because at the end of the day like we want to be perfect whatever that means but like in five years how, what would be oh, okay safety net has exceeded my expectations yeah so so our mission is well the mission is that we design and build trusted technology solutions for use to make 
precision fishing happen in the commercial fishing sector. Um, that's our stated mission. Our vision is, our stated vision is a world where humans in the ocean thrive together, which again, but I think, I think the, the, the vision or the mission from my perspective is that we, we help get things into use and deployment that otherwise might not have seen the light of day. So like what's really been exciting me recently is we started as this company with one sort of electromechanical solution, Pisces, right? Like these lights that we've built. We've learned so much about how to take a product from understanding the issue in the ocean and the fishing sector and then like design it with fishing crews and raise money around it to get it to the to deployment where it can actually have some positive impact. But where I see safety net in five time in five years' time is really actually more of an enabler of making sure that things leave the academic realm um, and enter the fishing industry. So they actually commercialize and, ha and have some, they don't get siloed, they don't get lost on the way or hit that valley of death. And also our own product development, like we continue to do that as we identify different opportunities and areas. But the way that we're going to do that is by being super collaborative. So for us, like the people who were last year, we considered as our competition, we're now reaching out to them being like, guys, this market is super fragmented. Like the fishing industry isn't going to progress because we're all too small to really shift the needle in this space individually. We're going to fight it out against each other and we'll get so far and then we're going to die because nothing will work together. It's going to be a pain in the ass to use. So what we're starting to do is actually chat with all the different people we know in the space and be like, guys, we need to team up. We need to get some standards. We need to figure out what parts of the problem we're all solving and how we plug into each other's stuff and start to build that ocean Avengers, essentially, of like tech solutions that can go and do stuff because we are only going to do this if we start pushing in the same direction. So the reason I got enthusiastic in the last like few months is because that's what we're starting to do. Like we're actually starting to unite people together and like and do stuff in that way. Is there a future where I see safety net uh, technologies a symbol or a standard on a can of tuna that I purchase? Uh, I, I mean, there might be. We, it's something we've certainly discussed, like a fished with Pisces or fished with, like, say, fished with sustainable technology. Um, if that actually has meaning to consumers and if we can stand by it and defend it, I absolutely see that could be something that could happen. Is safety net, it actually brings up another topic I'm curious about, which is, is safety net solving like the, the biggest problems in fishing? So it depends who you are. So to some people, the biggest problem in fishing is fishing. Uh, like we shouldn't be doing it, right? And and this is something that's come to light like massively recently with Seaspiracy and the documentary that was released on Netflix. I think bycatch is- I, 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 I would love to talk about this for a second. And, and I'm just gonna like make a little note to myself, like what, what problems are, um, is, is safety net solving uh, and is it the right ones? Seaspiracy, should we fish? Like, what are your thoughts? I mean, personally, like, is fish, I'm curious, like, are fish a renewable resource? So there are plenty of more qualified people than me who've spoken about this on the internet. And I, I honestly urge you to go and, like, have a look and see their arguments because they're very well-based. I think what I'd say about Seaspiracy is it outlined in a very short period of time in one documentary 15 incredibly pressing issues that the ocean genuinely faces. Like, none of the things it said as, as top-level ocean issues are untrue. Like, they are problems. Um, I think some of the facts it's used, yes, you could debate, were they old, were they outdated, did they come from the right place? Definitely debate that. What it didn't do, which was a real shame, I think, was show a lot of the work. And there is a huge amount of work that's going on in this space to try and solve some of those problems. Like people that I, as a person, respect, like the Global Ghost Gear Initiative, looking at plastics in the ocean, it was highlighted in the film as one of the biggest problems in the world, actually, because plastic in the ocean is like 48% fishing nets. 
and the Global Goalscare Initiative are guys going out there, like supporting as many projects and linking people up as much as they can to try and get that plastic out of the ocean, whether that's through technology production or better regulation, right? They were nowhere in the documentary. And I think we saw this replicated across many of the high level issues that came through in that film. It was, it was very one-sided. And, and you know, like, it, it's a shame. And I think it's, it's a shame because the, the, the solutions weren't highlighted, but on the other side, it got people talking. And that's what you really need. Like to implement change, you need people to talk about this and go like, wow, holy shit, really? It's that bad? Like, cause they're the people who are gonna go home to their kids and their families or to their parents and be like, did you see this thing? And their parents might just be a regulator or they might just be a CEO of a company that is doing fish production. And they're like, wow, my kids are complaining to me about this now. I should really go and do something. Yeah, so for, for all the people who watch the experience and wanna do something, tell your regulators to make sure that safety and technology is on their fishing vessels. Um, and, and, and hopefully that'll make an impact. But so ba back to the question. So like what problems is safety net solving and like, what are the other problems and where would you rack and stink them? Yeah. So it's so a yeah. rank and stack. <laughs> so, so our, our first, our first problem that we're trying to solve is bycatch. And that is like wrong, wrongful capture of, fish, of, of marine species. Um, that's pretty high up there. So like biodiversity is super important in the ocean space, right? You need to have a biodiverse area because uh, it's not resilient otherwise, uh, because diseases come in, they wipe out an entire population if you don't have that difference in species. So that's important to us. Um, overfishing is a big problem, like management around fishing is huge. Like make sure you're catching sustainably within the limits of the ocean's able to, ability to provide. Um, ocean ghost gear and plastics in the ocean, absolutely true, right? Let's stop losing nets and fishing gears, let's go find them. And that can be helped by technology and other things too. Um, yeah, I think those are, those are the huge ones. Um, climate change is, is affecting the oceans too, but that's like an external influence on, on something, on a body of water that's actually really helping the, the planet. Like it, it does a huge amount to sort of balance out carbon and, and climate problems, but we don't really warrant it the respect that it deserves. From your standpoint, how can a consumer help reduce the impact of climate change on the environment um, or sorry, on the ocean? Uh, and are there any like specific fish related decisions that I can do, um, whether that's talking to my regulators as we spoke about or buying certain kinds of certified fish? Hmm. Yeah, I wish I had an easy answer to that, but I think the, I mean, the most effective campaigns that we've seen has been pressure on regulators and retailers and the supply chain. And that all comes from consumers. It's like, are you voting with your vote or are you voting with your wallet? And like, that is where you have the real ability to like find critical mass and actually make a big change. Like we saw it in the EU, like laws were implemented purely off the back of consumer protest, essentially. Um, on an individual level, yes, you could eat fish from certified marine sources. You can look at where it comes from. Um, you can, when it makes sense to move to aquaculture probably because less greenhouse gas is associated. Um, but in terms of like directness, unless, I mean, like in the Western world, sorry, that's an awful way of putting it. In, in, in places where people can afford to do so, the message from Seaspiracy was like, stop eating fish, everybody. Actually, I think in some cases that is an appropriate reaction. Um, if you can afford to do so, take a look at your diet. Like, do you really need to eat fish? Because there are other ways of doing this and maintaining a healthy intake of, of, of nutrients and, and calories. Um, if we, like people who don't live near the ocean, people who don't subsist on fish don't need to eat fish. Um, you can find other ways to do that. 
And, and people have moved away from things like people move away from beef or they move away from pork or, or like battery chickens. Um, it's a decision that you can make around fish as well. And it's down to whether or not you can afford it or whether or not it's actually going to be healthy for you to do so. But for a large part of the world's population, it's neither of those things. And, and that's why it's a harder decision. Uh, I, I'm genuinely curious, like, where does the responsibility of the carbon footprint of fishing fall? Is it on me, the consumer of the fish? Is it on the, like, fishing companies, uh, fishing processors? I, I don't even know the whole supply chain, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, and actually, I'm really glad you asked that question because I think one of the things that industry and others do is that we push a huge amount of the burden of decision-making and change onto the consumer. Like the consumer has power here, don't get me wrong. Like they, they can and should wield it and use it for, for change. But the industry sometimes can take a back step and be like, okay, well, you haven't decided you want this, therefore it's not our fault. Like, I'm sorry, I'm just doing what I do and you haven't told me to change. And that's kind of not really fair. So I think industry is working hard to change. We're seeing things like people are starting to try and develop electric fishing vessels, for instance. So like less diesel being burned to go out and catch fish. Um, the transportation side of things, okay, let's ship it rather than send it by plane because, again, electrifying things is happening and, and that's going to get cleaner over time. Um, or let's do more local fishing. Actually, really cool things that have popped up over the sort of pandemic have been these domestic supply chains that have popped up on the internet. So fishing vessels can now sell their catch directly to restaurateurs or to the consumer rather than it going through the normal like process of like going to an auction, getting bundled in with a bunch of other fish, taken somewhere far away and brought back. You're buying stuff on the same day or the day after that's packed in ice and sent to you over a much shorter distance. And that, that profit or the money is going straight to the fishing crew who actually went out there and risked their lives to get you that fish, rather than being lost and sucked up by a supply chain, which is both carbon and cost intensive. So, okay, that doesn't work on an industrial scale yet because a lot of those products are then being used and processed into other things. Um, but it does work on a smaller scale thing that rewards fishing crews for the effort and risk that they take. Uh, when catching your meal well something we talked about previously was like a large campaign and I'm, i don't remember the exact details like a large fish a large like um people-led campaign to change the way that fish are eaten in the uk am i making that up that was so that was the fish fight um yeah and yeah. so the fish the fish fight actually was happening it was this guy called hugh Fernley whittingstall and he's a chef in the uk who was really popular and he he basically said like it's we're catching fish the wrong way like consumers, you need to do something about this. And this was right around the time that Safety Net started. And it's actually where a lot of the press around the fishing industry came from. So he had the fish fight, he got a million petitions, that meant it had to be debated in parliament. He took it to the EU. And this was all across the EU, it ended up being. So they campaigned, they fought, and that was what led to the regulation reforms in the EU. It was like the discard ban and the landing obligation. So it forced the common fisheries policy across the EU to be changed as of the last implementation was in 2019. And that was largely attributed to the fact that consumers were like this isn't on we're going to vote and, and make a change uk versus china versus us versus brazil like mentality is is there similar similar legislation between the uh the different countries or, or just care yeah so i'd say like the leading the leading regulators in this are the eu the us canada um parts of latin america actually peru and chile have very very strict regulation around fisheries uh, China, largest, by far and away, largest fisheries market in the world, like the, the hugest number of fishing vessels by a long shot, um, the longest, like the largest amount of deep sea fishing vessels and like far shore fishing vessels that eat the most seafood. Um, Indonesia also eats a ton of seafood. 
Um, China has less strong regulations, but is starting to look at the policies around a sustainable ocean. It's actually been one of the most interesting shifts in the last couple of years, is that there have started to be NGOs making traction in China about like, okay, even if China's only doing it because they care about Chinese domestic consumption of fish, it is something that's starting ever so slightly to be looked at. Places like Indonesia, like huge population of fish eating people, tons of islands, it makes sense to eat fish. Um, they've already legislated against things like trawls, right? So they banned the, the national trawl, which is called the Chantrang. Um, you can't trawl in, you can't legally trawl in Indonesian waters anymore, to the point where the former fisheries minister, Susi Pujasuti, um, blew up like 115 fishing vessels that she caught illegally fishing in Indonesian waters. Um, is that the best approach? No. Uh, probably not if you want to make friends, um, but she was a pretty radical woman, um, still is, she's still alive, but that was her approach to doing it. And yeah, there's some amazing stories about the stuff that she got up to in support of like defending Indonesia's fishing waters from foreign vessels because they are banned from Indonesian waters. And, and trawling is what? So trawling is where you have a large fishing net that you pull along the seabed or the middle of the water column. So you pull it behind one or two fishing vessels um, and you catch it, it's like a big net, and you catch a large amount of fish in it, basically. Okay, cool. Thanks. Dan, I've had a great time. Uh, thank you so much. I'd love to um, I'd love to finish up with some some fun quick fire questions, if that's okay. Uh, the first is, what is your favorite fish? Oh, wow. How do I not know this? My, I think, yeah, my... <laughs> and it could be to eat or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, on my business card, I have a fish, and I actually... I think it's a mackerel, but it wasn't one that I picked because I liked it. Um, I, I'm a big fan of, of the mantis shrimp. Like, have you seen those guys? They're incredible. They're like super colorful. They have the, the highest, pretty much like the most uh, acute vision of pretty much any creature in the world. They can see so many colors and stuff. It's really incredible. And they have this insane punch as well, which I think it cavitizes the water. So they punch so fast that it, it creates oxygen bubbles around their their fist or whatever it is, their like punching thing. Um, and it's just unbelievably like cool creature. Do you identify more closely with Nemo or Dory? Oh, uh, I'd say Dory because I'm always late. Like I am always late and I do forget things. Um, yeah, definitely Dory. Do you buy can't also I, I kinda had a feeling you were a Dory guy. I don't know why. Um, but I, I totally like felt that coming coming as an answer, although I had a fifty percent shot. Um, <laughs> do you buy canned fish? I do buy canned fish, but very, very rarely. Um actually How come? I, I think yeah, incredibly rarely. Like I maybe not even in the last year. Why do you buy it rarely? Um, because I prefer fresh fish. Fair enough. I can buy canned tuna for like ninety nine cents. But I can also buy it. It's we, uh, for here. It's like Bumblebee versus Wild Planet. It's like four seventy nine. Is there a difference in terms of the environmental impact between those two cans of tuna or cans of salmon, whatever it may be? That's a good question, and it's not something I'm really qualified to answer. Honestly, like the economics of fisheries are a whole other field, and um, I don't really know enough about the, where that fish is coming from from those two brands. Right? It, it could just be an economy of scale thing. Right? So. If you're catching, if you're getting like your organic tuna, right, which is coming from like a smallholder farm somewhere where it's completely traceable and like you know what's going on there being fed organic food, that's going to cost you more money, right? Feed is by far the most expensive element of raising farmed, 
well, not farm tuna, but like, um, yeah, it's expensive to raise organic fish, right? Or to, to source organic fish. Um, if you're looking at someone like Bumblebee, they're owned by Thai Union, I think it's still correct. Um, Thai Union is huge. It's like the biggest tuna producer in the world, like by far. Um, and so they have the economy of scale, right? They have a commoditized market. They have, a, they have the ability to source tuna from like the middle of the ocean from different people. Um, and that means they can drive the prices down because they've got like a vessel that carries a thousand tons of tuna when they've canned it and brought it to the US versus someone who's shipping stuff by like a truck in small quantities. And so all those prices get pushed up through the entire supply chain because of margins, right? But you as a consumer at the end of it can look at it and go, okay, I know where this came from. I trust it. I feel much better about myself purchasing this and my impact on the planet. Whereas it's, it's harder. And what we are seeing is people like Prince's who also supply tuna are looking way more into the supply chain, at least on the outside, to try and show people where it's coming from, to give them that same sense of reassurance that what they're eating is well-sourced. And even if it is 99 cents, you know, um, is that going to work? I mean, would consumers pay an extra 50 cents, a dollar, $2 on a can of tuna that's only 99 cents at the moment to have that transparency? Uh, I guess we'll have to see. And that's what is being tested at the moment. Climate change in general. Do you have any? Do you do you have any publications, books, journalists, podcasters that you listen to that are outside of the fishing world? Yeah, I think I th so. Yeah, this guy I follow on Twitter. Like I follow Jason Jacobs from Runkeeper, who now has the My Climate Journey um, podcast, and also like the Rolling Fund. I think the stuff he's doing is awesome. Uh, I, there's a ton of interesting climate investors out there. And obviously, from my perspective, as like a CEO of a company that raises money, like I, I have a, a closer look at what those guys are doing because I think what was it recently? It's, there was a guy who made a, an argument for like there's a 1.4 trillion dollar opportunity out there to solve a bunch of the problems facing the planet. Um, he broke it down like really simply based on like what's coming through in terms of the spending in the next few years, even under just Biden and his two trillion dollar plan, right? Um, looking at where the opportunities are for companies to go and solve problems like, that are being put out there by government just in the US alone. Like there's just this unbelievable amount of like value to be captured by solving these things. Um, and I think the way that people are building that value into these things is really interesting and transformative because what we're seeing is a boom in climate tech support because people can see there'll be a return in the future and it's going to help the planet and their kids. How do you feel about, this is the last one, I promise. Um, how do you feel about pets in general and uh, fish as pets specifically? Fish as pets? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, fish as pets, I mean, like, if, I think that's probably okay with reef fish if you treat them okay, like if you treat them well. And again, actually, with, even with reef fish, you have to do some diligence about where it came from because there's a huge industry in illegally caught reef fish um, and going into like endangered species markets and stuff. So that poses its own set of problems. Pets, pets, uh, I would love to have a cat and my partner would love to have a dog. And I think we probably will one day, but we're going to have to do that knowing that having those creatures massively increases our carbon footprint as owners, like hugely. Um, I think there's a list that says that one of the best things you can do to cut your carbon consumption is to not have a pet or to kill your dog, which not my words, but and I'm not encouraging that in any any sense. Um, but it's because if you look at things like, if you look at things like what cats and dogs eat and how much they eat, right? So predominantly protein diet, unless you've managed to train your cat to be a vegetarian or dog to be a vegetarian, 
And that comes from like from farming and it comes from wild fish capture and a huge amount of fish capture uh, goes towards feeding pets. Um, and there are whole huge brands that are like predicated around supplying pet food from wild capture fisheries and others. And so that carbon footprint, the, the paw print of that cat is far bigger than you would expect. Um, but I don't see that humans are going to stop having pets anytime soon because we love them too much. Yeah, it feels like everyone and their mother uh, or father have been getting like a, a golden doodle, uh, at least in Seattle where I'm located. So um, it's going to be a, a tough battle to fight. And maybe we'll get that uh, in the second episode, excited to the second interview we do. I'll be excited to dive deep in there. Oh, yeah. My, my brother did the same. He got a dog over, over COVID and like it's the best member of that family. And I have a nephew and a niece, so obviously they're the best. But like the, yeah, the dog's awesome. Amazing. Um, Dan, thank you so much. Anything else uh, that you want to share before we close? No, I think I think that's it. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, I think what you're doing is really cool. And it's great to bring these stories into the public and show where people can actually have a touch point on all the stuff that's going on. Because I think it's so easy to be completely removed and look on helplessly as huge decisions are made outside of your control. But actually finding ways that you can hopefully tangibly make an impact through your own decision making and ability is hopefully really powerful um, because you've got that network effect right where you do it maybe your neighbor does it maybe your friends and family do it and you become this evangelist for how we make change in the world so hopefully the more education there is the more ways that people can see they can do this the better and we we scale up faster and we do better Thanks again to Dan for joining us today. You can find him on LinkedIn or on Instagram at SNTechUK. That's S-N-T-E-C-H-U-K. I'm shocked that farmed fish may be the most sustainable way we can continue eating fish. In the same way we don't eat wild-caught cows, we may one day not eat wild-caught salmon. Farmed fish can be co-located with production and distribution centers, reducing the need to send oil-powered ships into the ocean. There's more to be done to produce healthy farm fish, but Safety Net is working to get us there. And in the meantime, they're helping fisher people catch the fish they want and nothing else. I'd love to hear what you thought about the episode. What fish do you buy? What's your favorite fish? You can join the conversation about Net Zero Living on our weekly Clubhouse office hours by following at the Net Zero Life. Clubhouse Net Zero office hours are Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Net Zero Life or by emailing Nathan at the NetZeroLife.com. This episode was produced by Tani Levitt. The original music was composed by Climb On Band. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. It literally takes five seconds and helps us a lot. Next week, I interview the founder of a carbon negative snacking company. Notwithstanding talking, and sometimes even during talking, I can be found eating. I love food, and I especially love to eat healthy food that helps the world fight climate change. Next week on the show is a 2000 born serial entrepreneur working to lessen the impact of my endless snacking has on the world.